In the Old Testament, Zion is a city championed by Enoch and destined for an eternal realm. Today, Zion is often envisioned as a concept or an ideal, and all the same, it is a real achievable objective that God has tasked us to achieve together. Wherever there is effort, there is bound to be some disappointment. Failure, sin, and weakness is inevitable. So what a joy and comfort it is to know that we are upheld by a merciful and kind God who loves us enough to allow us to discover our own paths to meekness and mercy. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. So, you know, Zion's made up of a whole bunch of individuals and, and they retain their individuality, they retain their individual culture, where they came from, their gifts and talents, but they bring all of that together uh, and, and lay that on God's altar and, and they do it for the purpose of unity. The, they, they wanna come together and make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. So Zion to me is having one heart and one mind and just being united in, in your belief system. And so I feel like a Zion people is, everyone is trying to become more like the Savior. We're just trying to be like Him, trying to get back to Him and treat each other as Christ would, would treat us. Welcome everyone. Uh, today, uh, we're gonna discuss some topics that we've researched in Moses chapter seven. And the first topic we're gonna talk about is Zion, one heart and one mind. And the second topic will be God weeps for his children, which comes from the Come Follow Me resource. To help us with our topics, uh, we wanna first introduce Patrick Mason, who is an associate professor in history and religious studies at Utah State University. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks. And seated next to Patrick, we have our special guest, who is Brother Ahmed Corbett, who is the first counselor in a young men's general presidency. And uh, in his professional career, Brother Corbett was an attorney. He has served as a mission president and also in the public affairs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So welcome, Brother Corbett. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started uh, with you, Patrick. Will you give us a little context on what we're going to be uh, talking about today? Yes, we're talking about Moses chapter seven, which is actually one of my favorite chapters of scripture. It's amazing. So this was part of Joseph Smith's inspired translation of the Bible. And when you read the book of Genesis, it mentions this prophet named Enoch, but there's only like a couple of verses. And as Joseph Smith was uh, doing his inspired translation of the Bible, just this flood of revelation came. It's just one of my favorite passages that, that reveals how much God loves us uh, through the experiences of the prophet Enoch. Well, I'm very excited to discuss this. Uh, Brother Corbett, in your study of this chapter, is there anything that you would say kind of stood out to you that the Holy Ghost was trying to teach you this time around? Oh, there are many things. Uh, Enoch's faith and uh, the power with which he spoke, the impact he had on the people, um, the way he actually exercised faith, how he actually did that, what that looked like is all in Moses 7 as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, let's get into our first topic, which is Zion, one heart and one mind. I'm going to turn it over to you, Patrick, to go ahead and just tell us what you know, and uh, let's get discussing. Yeah, so, so what we see in this chapter is that Enoch is, is preaching, and a lot of people are rejecting him. A lot of people aren't listening, but a lot of people are. 
Uh, he's hesitant at first, like, like we see a lot of prophets, but, but eventually he's just filled with the power of God. And he goes out and, and these people are attracted to him and they start to build a city. One, one of the great moments in, in scripture is of what it looks like for a people who are converted to come together. Moses chapter seven, verse 18, and it says, the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. So right there in one verse, we have a little recipe for what mm -hmm. Zion is. Brother Corbett, what are your thoughts? Well said, uh, and the Lord says in section 97 that Zion uh, are the pure in heart. Uh, and so, and, and this makes you think too of, of fourth Nephi, the yeah. beginning of fourth Nephi, yeah. doesn't it? Uh, this other utopian society where these people come together, they were of one heart, one mind, and, and they were one in Christ, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people created by the hand of God, it says. And it seems like that's what uh, Moses 7 is describing among Enoch's people as well. Yeah. So does that mean to be of one heart and one mind? What do you, what do you make of that? I, I like the way Elder Holland said it. He said that uh, not that everyone was the same, but that the, and Elder Christofferson mentioned this as well, but that the love of God was such a priority for them that it overshadowed everything else. And so every, every interaction, everything said, uh, was elevated by the love of God and not lesser things. What would you say is the most important thing that to create a Zion people that we have to become unified in? The scriptures tell us exactly that, that we have to be unified in the love of God uh, that we share and then in the love that we share for one another. The, the two great commandments, that's, that's the mission statement. Zion isn't just for one church. It's not just for one race or one ethnicity. Zion is the vision that God has for all of his children. So it has to be able to transcend all of those differences. Uh, Brother Corbett, I, I, I'm curious to know from your life experience, would you mind telling us how have you seen this love of God overcome a lot of the differences that exist in the world today. Mm, mm. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, there's there's not a certain sitcom theme song that comes to your mind. <laughs> I, yeah, I must confess, that's going through my head right now. And, and, and I did go to high school in West Philadelphia. <laughs> um, our family was initially part of the Nation of Islam. I was held by Malcolm X as a baby. I say all this to say that we were you know, very much into black pride. Mm. And then, uh, and so when we were contacted by the missionaries and they said, we have a message for you, they were both white, one from Idaho, one from California. And my mom felt something, so we listened. And the first time we went to church, our ward was essentially, there was one black family there, but it was essentially, in our minds, a quote unquote, white church. Mm. The reception we got couldn't have been better. It, it was love, it was, it was embrace, um, and in fact, it actually was more impressive that they were white. If I'm right, you were 17, is that correct? I was 17 at the time. How does an experience like that shape the life of a 17-year-old? Were there any sort of preconceived uh, notions on, on your part of other cultures? That's a great question because I was just sitting here thinking it started to melt away my own prejudices. Mm. 
and how I saw people as well. And some were melt away for those people as, as they received us. And so as the Lord brings his children together, he helps us see each other as he sees us in this Zion way, one heart, one mind, no poor among them. And, uh, and so that was our experience. And then, of course, I remember one of the first times seeing, I am a child of God. And he has sent me here. It just, I, I remember where I was in the back, way back in the chapel in sort of the uh, overflow area. And I'm singing this song for the first time. And it is melting my heart and elevating my vision. I, I actually remember this as a 17-year-old. That's amazing. I've always thought like that song, it's one of the most powerful and radical <laughs> teachings that we have. But, but in some, sometimes we sing it so much that we forget just how powerful yeah. it is, right? I mean, it, that is in some ways, that is the foundation of, of the kind of human family, right? We are all children of God. That's it. And so, this, so I'm having this musical experience about my true identity yeah. for the first time. Not that I didn't know I was a child of God, but our parents kind of mm -hmm. taught that mm -hmm. and other religions do as well. But at that level, with that kind of witness of the Holy Ghost as to my true identity, kind of started melting things away. I love hearing this. At the same time, I can't help but realize that your experience doesn't happen for everyone. What would you tell um, those within and without the church when they don't necessarily feel the way that you felt or have that experience that you had? I think if people can recognize that, that the, the love of God, our identity as children of God, is a higher realm than what my race is or what my orientation is or, or anything about us here on earth. I think then we can get to a Zion mentality and a Zion heart. I love it. The fact that God created us differently means we can't criticize or diminish any of those differences yeah. <laughs> because we'd be criticizing or diminishing his work. Uh, which is a beautiful thought. It, one other thing I would say is, remember in, the, in his intercessory prayer, uh, in John chapter 17, Jesus says, you know, that they may be one in us, um, speaking to his Father, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So it's our unity as Jesus' disciples and followers and people that will ultimately convince the world mm -hmm. that he is the Christ. I love that. And, I, and I'm really excited to discuss, you know, those topics on race further in footnotes. I want to uh, go to the audience and just kind of get uh, your thoughts on how have you seen Zion being established within your own little communities? Lenka, please. Yes. So in my own experience, when I <clears throat> came to the United States, uh, I came here to the university. It wasn't for um, the church, but definitely the kindness of people. It was my experience overall anywhere I went. So, so how do you how how did you take that experience and then like use it as a domino for your actions to kind of create that among yeah, others? Yeah, definitely. The, I think the kindness is the key. Okay, and it's not easy. Because the world can be tough, just like we talked about. We have variety of diversity and everything. So um, it starts with you. you. And that is the hardest key to practice. Uh, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
Robert, please go ahead. You know, I, to me, Zion seems so big and abstract in my mind, especially as I watch the events of the world happen down to um, simple things, where the, whether it's work or even family. But I often find myself denying forgiveness to other people, and I realize that I'm denying the atonement of Jesus Christ if I'm not forgiving. It just starts right in that little place, consecrating our hearts to the Savior. If, if I can create Zion in this tiny little space, even just inside my heart. Robert, that's a beautiful comment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the knife. It's a good reminder that Zion has to start within each of us. Even if, as Robert said, if, if I'm trying to change my heart, there's still going to be conflict that we're going to encounter with others. How do we deal with that? President Nelson, in his call to, to uh, about prejudice, he said, I call on us to lead out not in making other people not prejudiced, <laughs> but to lead out in abandoning attitudes of prejudice. Mm -hmm. Members of the First Presidency, President Nelson, President Oaks, have said that only the gospel can unite men of all races. The gospel is what this weary, contentious world needs. That's beautiful, I love it. Kind of reminds me of uh, in the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. uh, First Nephi 3.7. We have this great scripture uh, that Nephi says, uh, in response to his father, he says, I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. So we know the Lord has commanded us to establish Zion. There is going to be a way. to do That's got to bring, bring hope to, you know, to all of us, knowing that there is a way. We just have to make sure we find that way and strive towards it. Mm -hmm. I love that. And um, we typically apply that, that scripture to ourselves individually. You're applying it to us as a people. And I think our church is uniquely positioned and empowered to accomplish this. Mm. We have the Book of Mormon. We have the holy uh, office of apostle and prophet. And their calling is to bring us all into the unity of the faith, Paul said. When the church is doing what the church is supposed to be, it is the laboratory for making Christians. It reminds me of the scripture in uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 38. I say unto you, be one, and if ye are not one, you are not mine. That's how we create this Zion society. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much for your comments on our first topic, which is Zion, one heart and one mind. I think God has a broader view of my suffering than I do. He understands it. And I think that as I suffer and go through trials, that he's pulling for me and he wants me to succeed because he knows it's going to make me a stronger person. I think he, he feels it. I, I think he weeps for us. Moses 7 says that God weeps for the residue of his people. Those residue didn't go with the city of Enoch because they weren't worthy to do that. So they by their own actions, they suffered and he wept for them. I imagine it's it's mixed emotions for him, um, the empathy and the pain that he feels that, that I'm feeling, but also the joy that uh, of knowing that this is gonna be good for me in the long run and, and it's part of life um, and, it's, and it's part of his design to help us be better people and more like him. We're gonna move on to our next topic, which is God weeps for his children. And to help jumpstart this discussion, 
We have a question from one of our viewers. Hi, I'm Pamela Beheshti from North Salt Lake. Um, in Moses 7, we learn that God weeps for his children, but we also know that he has a plan and we know of our own free agency within that plan. My question is, in knowing all of this, why would God weep? It's a really good question. Patrick, what do you think? It's a terrific question. And this is actually, I'll tell you, Ben, this is one of my all-time favorite passages in, in Scripture. Enoch has built uh, this, this city of Zion. He has a vision of all of humanity, right? I mean, I can't even imagine that, right? Uh, but as part of this, in Moses chapter 7, verse 28, it says, It came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, so all these other people actually outside the city of Zion, and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it, saying, How is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as the rain upon the mountains? And Enoch said unto the Lord, How is it that thou canst weep, seeing that thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity? It's the same question that she had. And, and so, how is it that the God of heaven, right, who knows everything, who's all-powerful, how, how can that God weep? And God tells us here in this vision uh, and and it's, it's beautiful, but it's also heartbreaking. In verse 33, the Lord says, Unto thy brethren I have said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. That's why God weeps. That's the godly response to suffering, right? To, to mourn with those that mourn. And why are we commanded to do that? Why do we covenant to do that? Because that's exactly what God does with us. God commanded us to love one another, right? That's the first, you know, to love God and to love one another. And God looks out upon all of his children and he sees the way that we hate each other, the way we treat each other. It's the opposite of the city of Zion. It's the exact opposite of what Enoch did. And that's why God weeps, because of the way that we act towards one another. I, I also uh, love the point that, um, that these people, the residue of the people for whom God wept, were, were pretty exclusive people. Exactly right. These are not the people of the city of Enoch, because uh, they, they've been lifted up into heaven. These were people who, who, were, who had excluded, right? And th these were people who, who created a community that, that wasn't welcoming, that wasn't inclusive. And that's part of what God sees and weeps over. And speaking of weep, what reminded me of that was uh, President Nelson's comment in a, in, a, in a conference talk where he said, I grieve that my black brothers and sisters mm -hmm. suffer racism anywhere in the world. That's a godly response mm -hmm. to that very suffering. We have this general idea that God weeps with his children. When has he wept with Ahmed Corbett? First of all, I have made God cry on any number <laughs> of occasions, okay? I have made him cry, uh, if that's what you're asking. Uh, <laughs> I've made myself cry, my parents cry. That's a superpower, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, you know, there's this one, one time uh, when I went into a, a chapel, I was alone. It was after a leadership meeting, and I knelt and prayed, and I prayed three times. And he gave me this, the long and short of it is, he gave me this really clear sense of what Elder Uchtdorf calls the paradox of man. My, my, my great 
you know, somethingness in his sight that he so loved me that he sent his only begotten son, but also my wretchedness, mm. my nothingness without Christ. So I had that experience that night and it was life-changing for me. Thank you so much. Um, I want to ask the audience, you know, uh, when have you felt God weep for you, weep with you? Stephen, go ahead. In 2016, uh, I was in an accident and I lost my memories and I lost a lot of my mobility. And uh, weeks later, my girlfriend of five years uh, stopped taking care of me and left me as well. And I remember thinking that was the most hopeless situation I could be in and Christmas was coming and I was gonna spend it alone and it was gonna be horrible. I felt uh, God weeping for me, but life got better uh, and God knew it would. I just needed to trust and have faith and, uh, and know that he, even in hard times, he still cared for me and he was gonna see me through. That is a great mm. example. I kind of remind you that, you know, he weeps with us when things aren't going so well and um, he weeps, weeps with us when things are going really well. Thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate that. Please, Gabe. So I've kind of grown up in a rough past, you know, growing up in the foster care system and being adopted. I feel like the part, you know, that I was most benefited from was being able to be blessed with a family that was a member of the church, you know, and had good values and morals. And then um, they kind of guided me step by step and just feeling their Christ-like love towards me, somebody they didn't even know and eventually is, called me as their own. What a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Beautiful thought. That, that Gabe's story is the story of the Abrahamic covenant, mm. where, where God makes this promise to this great prophet and then scatters his seed around the world to bless all families of the earth, and whether by natural lineage or by adoption, it's all the same. Beautiful story. That's exactly where we learn to be the people that God wants us to be, to, to feel the way towards other people that he wants us to feel. Again, that's the godly response is, is that we begin to feel more, right? We, we, we don't begin to feel less, we begin to feel more for the sorrow and the sufferings of other, of, of, of other people. So when we see refugees, when we see people who are homeless, when we see people who are incarcerated, when we see people, you know, who are, uh, you know, abandoned or divorced or disabled or, you know, just hard, having hard lives, that, that we do what Enoch does, right? And what does that create? And it, it ultimately, it creates Zion, right? That, that's what we hope to do. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Maybe, you know, there are a lot of ways that we, we make him weep, but hopefully we occasionally make him smile too uh, when, when we get it right. Thank you so much. Jan, go ahead. Well, I this um, whole discussion has helped me process an incident that happened to me last night. My husband's a Vietnam vet, and we went out to dinner late last night. And uh, we sat down, and the people sitting next to us, they had on a, a tire that was in conflict with my, my political beliefs. Okay. And I immediately made a judgment about these mm -hmm. people. We were sitting, finishing our dinner. They got up and came over to our table, and the, the uh, father asked my husband if he was a Marine. And my husband said, yes, I uh, served in Vietnam. And the wife said, well, we really wanna thank you for your service. And the husband put a $20 bill on our table, 
and said, we'd like you to have dessert on us. Um, I just, you can imagine the thoughts that went through my head because I had immediately misread them. Mm. And um, I, of course, started crying. Um, but I didn't really think about God weeping too. And I see now that um, he wept the minute I made that judgment. Mm. He knew that I would learn from that lesson. I'm not going to forget that. Such a touching story. Thank you so much. Jenny Ray. Just recently, a few weeks ago, I lost my mother. And like Jan, it's hard not to cry. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about how it brings sadness when someone dies. But I also thought of the fact that God is welcoming her into his arms. And I think about the fact that she was able to be reunited with her parents and her brother. And, and I think about my own family and how important my children are and that we have to have unconditional love in every situation, whether it's with our family, whether it's with people that we don't know very well, and see that God's love can be emulated through us. Thank you so much for sharing that. Really appreciate it. For the Corbett, it's almost sad that we have to end this conversation. It's so good, but I'm going to defer to you to share some some final thoughts for us today. Oh, thank you, I, Jan and Jan's and Janie's thoughts take me back to the scripture Moses seven forty four. Enoch saw this; he had bitterness of soul and wept over his brethren, and he said to the heavens, "I will refuse to be comforted." He was really in a bad place. But look at what the Lord said to him. Lord said unto Enoch, lift up your heart and be glad and look. And pointed him to, to the Savior. Um, and then, starting in 55, and the Lord said unto Enoch, look. And he looked and beheld the Son of Man lifted up on the cross after the manner of men. And he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled and all the creations of God mourned, and the earth groaned, and even the very rocks were rent at the Savior's uh, crucifixion. We were the creations of God. We weren't embodied yet, but we were the creations of God, and this tells us that all the creations of God mourned. I'm convinced all of us, all of God's children in the pre-mortal world, uh, witnessed that great event and, and mourned, but that the Lord comforted us and said to be of good cheer. Thank you so much for your comments. And audience, thank you so much. This wraps up this discussion on our second topic, which is God weeps for his children. Now I'm really excited to get into some more discussion in our footnotes portion. The Holy Ghost is a constant companion, which I am grateful for, and I think I feel it every day. For me, the Holy Ghost is, is definitely a still, small voice, very still and very small. I um, feel like the Holy Ghost mostly prompts me in, uh, in silent ways. I try to seek it out and recognize it and understand it uh, constantly, day by day. Um, whether or not I'm completely successful in that, it's, it's, uh, it's constant work, but uh, it gets easier as time goes on, and it's something that I pray for every single day.
Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes, where we're going to dive in a little bit deeper into some of the things that we've been talking about from Moses chapter 7. And we left a little teaser before the break about race and some verses that are brought up in Moses chapter 7. Why don't we go ahead and dive in and start talking? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, here's the thing. So, so Moses 7 contains, like we talked about, some of the most glorious doctrines of the Restoration. But there are a couple passages in here that uh, I think trip some people up. Uh, sometimes, you know, the best strategy is not to skirt around them or pretend like they don't, they don't exist, but, but to kind of dive right in and All see right. what they say. So if you go to uh, Moses chapter 7, verse 8, it says, For behold, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat, and the barrenness thereof shall go forth forever. And there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan, that they were despised among all people. All right, so if, so if we pause there, there's been uh, a lot of talk throughout history about curses and, and race mm-hmm. and the color of people's skin. In this verse, we have language of blackness, we have a language of curse, right? And so, so I think sometimes com- kind of people can put these things together. But if we look really carefully at what's going on in the verse, I, I think it helps us uh, make better sense of it. So first of all, it talks about a curse, but what's being cursed here? It's the land, the land. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, with, with, with heat, with barrenness. Uh, and then there's a blackness that came upon all the children of Canaan. It doesn't say where that blackness came from. Uh, it doesn't put any moral value on that. It just, just says it, it happens, it's just purely descriptive, that they were despised among all people. And when I read that, I think, you know, the fact that they were despised by other people for the color of their skin, that's not their fault. It's somebody else's problem. <laughs> it's somebody else's problem, right? So, so if, if there's any sort of moral burden associated with mm. race here, uh, or, or, you know, we use the term race, uh, but color, but yeah. color yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that it's, it's the people who were despising the, these people, not, not the, the, the people themselves. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I love that. Well said. Later on, and it came to pass that the Lord showed unto Enoch all the inhabitants of the earth, and he beheld, and lo, Zion in process of time was taken up into heaven. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Behold, mine abode forever. But before that, it says, Zion have I blessed, but the residue of the people have I cursed. These are the people who were not worthy to to dwell in the city of Enoch which was Zion. So apparently they couldn't dwell in righteousness. They couldn't be of one heart and one mind. And so they weren't worthy of that status. And among those people, uh, Enoch beheld in 22, the residue of the people that we were just talking about, which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain, for the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them. Following your same train of thought, it sounds like the residue of the people who weren't worthy to be in the city of Enoch or be taken up to heaven had this kind of, we don't want black people among us. Yeah. And is, is that one of the reasons why? It, is right? that one of the reasons? These were the same people, the residue of the people who weren't taken up, who, uh, over whom the Lord wept mm-hmm. because of their wickedness. And, and so why? On. Because they hate their they own hate blood. They hate their own blood. Yeah. As covenanted Christians, uh, one of our first obligations, one of the very first thing that we covenant to do is to mourn with those that mourn, right? So, so if somebody feels 
uh, that they've been discriminated against, right? If, if, if somebody feels, you know, that they've been excluded, that they've been marginalized, if they're in deep mourning, we, we, we want to go with them. We want to lift their burdens, right? Uh, whatever they have. But then I think, especially if the question is about uh, the, the church and what does the church teach and where's the church at on these kinds of issues. Or what has the church taught? Well, exactly. Practices, right? I know that as we look back in the church's past, hasn't always lived up to its own ideals in terms of racial exclusion. That that there there was a long part of our history uh, where racial exclusion was was part of it, and we can talk about the different reasons and things like that. But beginning in 1978, uh, as, as as a people, as a church, we received new revelation. It's a new day. We've received new revelation, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna go forward with that. When people ask me, and I've had, as, as you can imagine, as a black man and having served two missions in the Caribbean, uh, I've been asked this question once or twice <laughs> <laughs> and thought it for myself and had to raise children as well sure. uh, and a stake in New Jersey and missionaries. I, I'm cautious about, uh, about thinking negatively about past prophets. I think that's a trap. And uh, I, I think that Satan would love nothing more than to decouple prophets out of the prophetic line from Joseph Smith to President Nelson and, and have people or a segment of people or demographics of people diminish particular prophets and disregard what they say because they did this or that or taught this or that. I think that's really dangerous. I, I believe, and this is a bold statement, but I'm going to make it anyway. I personally believe that the church is the single most, single best positioned and most powerful international organization in the world to bring about true racial and ethnic harmony. Back that up. Why? <laughs> no, that, that's because I that's love a that claim. statement. Isn't, isn't yeah, that tell a big me claim? why. This is great. <clears throat> and, and when you think about, wait a minute, our church? <laughs> you, you know, We're people, talking about somebody else's. people might be thinking that, wait, wait, our, our church that had this priesthood ban and that had this, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you why. That's part of the miracle of it, yeah. is that if, if, if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does that and can do that, God surely is with that church. It, it, we sing, you know, that song that her light should there attract the gaze of all the world in latter days. This will attract attention by people uh, to, to, to know that, gosh, this church that had this priesthood ban is now this force in the world for unifying God's children. Another thing, we are destined to gather Israel. What does gather Israel mean? It means to gather God's righteous children from all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. That's going to look like the family of God. And we are destined to do it. And it has to happen before the millennial millennium comes. And President Nelson said it's the most important thing taking place on earth today. So, so those two things, let me stop with those two things, but there are others. Right. The Book of Mormon, the role of prophet and apostle as, as a gathering of, uh, role and having the keys to gather people, that means they have the keys to unify people. That's of necessity, great. it means mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. You know, that, sorry, sorry to cut you off. It just no, no, no. It reminds me of President Nelson, this quote that we were talking about. It says, God does not love one race more than another. Yes. His doctrine is he, clear. I on love this that. His yeah. doctrine on this matter is clear. He invites all 
to come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. As, as a member of the church, as somebody who uh, desperately wants to build Zion, right? The, this, this doctrine that, that we have that comes to us from Paul, comes, from, comes to us from Nephi, comes to us from Jesus, comes to us now from President Nelson, right? Uh, this, this is what Zion building is, is look like. And, 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 and like you said, if, if we're not doing it, we're not building Zion. If we're not bringing together the entire family of God. I, I love that. You, you remind me of a, of a scripture in, 90, in section 93 where the Lord talks about history. <clears throat> I'm sure you know it well. It's the, I think it's the, last, it's the last verse in section 93, which is verse 53. And verily I say unto you that it is my will that you should hasten to translate my scriptures and to obtain a knowledge of history yeah. uh, and of countries and of kingdoms and of laws. That one, that one, yeah, that's we, my, we, that's yeah, exactly. laws right. of God. The lawyers aren't all bad. The lawyers aren't all bad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> of laws of God and man, and here's the key, and here's what you said, Patrick, and all this for the salvation of Zion. Yeah. And if we're looking back to, to kind of criticize or to, or to wallow in it or something, it becomes quicksand to us, and we're essentially doing sort of Lot's wife. And, and w one of the things we have to remember about Lot's wife is she didn't just look back or long to go back. She turned her back mm -hmm. on the future that God had for her and her family. Mm -hmm. so, so failing to look forward and seeing the glorious vision of unity that this church is destined for turns our back on it to some degree. Can you speak to, with your experience working um, in church leadership, can you speak to some of the things that are being done, uh, specifically with President Nelson? You know, we've seen in church news how he has reached out to certain organizations to kind of, to provide some healing. Can you speak a little bit to that and some of the progress that is happening? In fact, I was involved in the, in the, in the initial relationship with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People uh, we, I was in the meeting that the leadership had with the First Presidency and members of the Twelve. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful meeting. They talked about priorities and, and their vision for each other and uh, their own organizations. Uh, but there was this one point where uh, we come out from that meeting and there's this news conference that, that's about to happen. And, and so we come out, everyone comes out, and there's this lectern in the middle, and the First Presidency goes over here as you're looking at them, they go to the left, and the NAACP goes to the right, uh, Reverend Dr. Amos Brown. Brown, he's an older black man, uh, pastors a church. This is totally unscripted. He goes over and stands next to President. President Nelson doesn't know this is coming. He kind of looks at his tie and, oh, and he sees Amos come. And so he, Amos comes around and President Nelson does what? Links arms. Links arms. Naturally and normally. That's who he is. That's our prophet. He does it because he loves God's children. This is the same prophet who said, I grieve when I hear that my black brothers and sisters experience racism anywhere in the world. And then called on members of the church to lead out in, in, in interestingly, not, not making others uh, abandon their attitudes, but in abandoning our own attitudes of prejudice. You know, I, I love that. And I love this, the leadership from President Nelson. And if we could catch that vision, you know, to really see each other's true identity, 
and, and view them as our Heavenly Father views. I wonder how, if our you know, hearts will change and if we will then weep and mourn with those that mourn. Mm, yeah, good, I mean, you know, and, and, and in this chapter, uh, nobody's cursed because of the color of their skin. Nobody's cursed because of what good family they're born into. I mean, they're, they're cursed in verse 10. Uh, it says, repent, lest I come out and smite them with the curse and they die. They die. In other words, you're, you're cursed if, if, if you don't repent, if you don't respond to God. That applies to all of us. Uh, in verse 15, there went forth a curse upon all people that fought against God, right? Again, that's, that's, that's a choice. That could, that could be anybody. And so, so the, yeah, is, is there language of cursing in, in this chapter? Absolutely. But it's never attached to, to what skin you're born into. It's never attached to what nation you're born into or what, what people or family you're born into. It's attached to the kinds of choices that you make in relationship to God. And, and, and it, you, you sort of curse yourself as much as anything. Right? And the beauty of the gospel is none of that is, is permanent. And it's not permanent, right? You, you can absolutely, I mean, Enoch was a prophet of repentance. All the prophets are prophets of repentance. And the people weren't born into Zion. He built Zion. It actually took hundreds of years. I mean, this, that's part of the thing that I appreciate. It took Enoch like 300 years, 350 years, something like that, to, to build Zion. This isn't going to happen overnight. And as a mission president, I appreciate that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the restoration is only 200 years old on this planet, right? No, yeah. we, we've only come to, to really fully appreciate you know, that the whole family of God and, and, and preach to them without any restrictions in, my math isn't very good, but 40 some odd years, mm -hmm. right? And so if it took Enoch that long to build Zion, we've still got some time. That doesn't mean we can just sit back and let the clock, you know, go, but, but it's, it's a process. It, it takes time. I, I see our ability as followers of Jesus, as Latter-day Saints, uh, to combine our faith our opportunity to combine our faith and, uh, and look forward with an eye of faith and see a Zion society. This is promised to us. The Lord has promised it. We, we apply 1 Nephi 3.7 to us as a people, not just individually, but collectively. And, and when we do that, we know that the Lord hasn't given us a commandment that we can't, that we can't uh, keep. And the commandment is to be one. Mm. And if you're not one, you're not mine. And so we can be one. We will be one. The question is, who's going to participate in helping us be one? If we're going to work in that, and the young people today really have the a power yeah. Yeah. To, to, to combine their faith and channel their faith and do this and really, really be a basis for this, led by the First Presidency and the Twelve. Um, but if we're going to, if we're going to do this, we have to do it. You can do it the Lord's way, or you can do it the world's way. Our message has to be to do it the Lord's way, and not and resist the temptation to have the chatter, the theories, the the the, the concepts, the ways of going about it from the world seep into the church, and kind of use the that language, use those concepts in the kingdom of God and they don't work and they don't fit. There are a few threads that are common okay. for all these Zion societies. One of the things that is common in 4th Nephi, in Moses 7, in Acts 2 and 4, the earliest Christians mm -hmm. in the New Testament, it begins with a deep 
conversion to Jesus Christ and his gospel that transforms individuals and then transforms societies. That had all things common. Had, they had all things in common. Right. So there's a sense that we're going to do whatever we, we can to, to eliminate these, these barriers, these socioeconomic distinctions. We've been talking about racial distinctions here, but also socioeconomic distinctions among us. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I want to be a part of this. How would you say that in our daily practice, we can help create a society where there are no poor among us? Such a good question, because we, we, we question. have to talk about the concrete, right? We have, yeah. we're, we're talking about real people here. So I want to go to Jesus's first words that he preached when he was announcing his messiahship. Okay. This is uh, Luke chapter four, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Think about Jesus in his actual everyday life. He went to people who were actually poor, right? Okay. And, and, and he went to people who were actually brokenhearted. You know, he went to people who were actually blind and deaf and disabled in so many different ways. Look around, right? Be aware, uh, talk to a city council person, right? Talk, talk to somebody, is, what are the needs in my community? Are there refugees in my community, right? Are there, are there homeless in my community? Are there people who have been incarcerated who are trying to be you know, reintegrated into society? Are there people who are illiterate in my community? Right? Find out what the needs are in your community. The answer is going to be a little bit different, but it, but it starts with, with a heart to want to do it, but then with a little bit of effort, a little bit of research to figure out what are the needs in my community, and then just connect, go out and do the work. And, and I like that the church is doing so much more to partner with other organizations. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. We don't have to be in the lead all the time. We don't have to have all the answers. I mean, other people oftentimes have been doing this work long before us, other religious and secular organizations. So how can I just be a part in my community, in my, I don't have to solve all the problems of the world, right? But in my community, in my sphere of influence, how can I go out and find somebody who's poor, who's struggling, who's, who's homeless, who needs shelter, uh, those kinds of things, and what can I do personally? I love it. And, th and that's a great way to go out and, and look in the community. Another way is to pay a generous fast offering. The church does uh, incredible things, projects, and, and outreach with, with, that, with those resources. Fast offering, humanitarian donations as well are, are separate. And we know the church does so many wonderful things for people all over the world, irrespective of religion or, or mm -hmm. race or gender or whatever. Again, that idea of truly seeing everybody the way that God sees them. We're yes. not just looking at, oh, we're the same religion, so therefore we'll help you. Right. No, we're all, we are all God's children on this earth. It starts with trying to be a disciple of Jesus and then use that as the rocket fuel to, to go out and, and go, in, go out and change the world. So it's not separate from your religious identity. It's at the very core the of your religious identity. President Nelson said of the youth, you have the capacity to be smarter and wiser and to have a bigger impact for good on the world than any previous generation wow. to these youth today. And, and that's who they are. They want that, they feel yeah. that, they feel it inherently mm -hmm. because it's their spirit yeah. that, that's part of it. And so if, if we can all come together and have them channel it, have them channel their faith 
um, look forward together with an eye of faith, having one heart and one mind, uh, we could literally change the world. I love it. So how do we find that balance of charitable acts while still um, inspiring uh, this idea of becoming self-reliant in others? And helping others maintain their dignity. Yeah, maintain that dignity, becoming self-reliant. We want to give, but we also want to create self-reliance. I assume you had a lot of experience with that as a church leader. So, so how did how did you balance those th those things? Because we want to be generous. We want right? to be generous, and we and the Lord's blessed us to be able to be generous yeah. as a people, Command and then commanded and, us and to. commanded us to. <laughs> right? Well said. <laughs> and 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 so I, I, you know, a couple of times I have in in my regular interviews with bishops as a stake president, uh, reviewing finances seeing patterns of church resources mm -hmm. being expend, being spent too much right. for a particular thing or a particular family or whatever. And I would ask, Bishop, do you think we're, are we, are we making them independent and, and increasing their dignity and reliance upon the Lord and setting them up to be able to help others mm. who maybe fall on hard times? And, um, and so we had to make some adjustments from time to time. One of the hardest things I had to do was, and I didn't want to just tell the bishop to go do it, we invited on a couple of occasions the family in, and the bishop would be there, and I would apologize. Brother, sister, I apologize because we have clearly created a dependence. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's my fault. I ultimately oversee the expenses here in the stake. Um, and Bishop would say something like, no, no, I, I it, it, well, both of us. Um, but we, what can we do to help you be more self-reliant and not dependent upon the church? We don't want to see you fail and, mm -hmm. and kicked out of the street or your house or whatever. Let's walk with you as you put together a plan for independence for yourself and your family. That's great. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. What a great example. So we've been talking about this idea of what we can do to help create a Zion-like society. Brother Corb, I want to ask you about a time where you needed to rely on a Zion community. Mm. Well, let me go with uh, physically and, and monetarily. Okay. Um, I had just joined the church, had no intention of going on a mission. Uh, got, I went out to Rick's, came back the next year in 1981, converted to the idea to serve a mission. And, but I had no money. So I went in to the bishop's office and said, Bishop, Bishop, guess what? I'm going to go on a mission. <laughs> and he said, and I quote, how much money do you have? <laughs> <laughs> there goes your balloon deflated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, yeah, you know, when, when I was, you know, in, a lead, in leadership, I didn't quite do it that way. Uh, but uh, and you learn, you know, it's a process. You, you learn, you know, you learn from people. Uh, and I said, none. He said, well, you're going to have to work. So I had to work another 14, 16 months saving up several thousand dollars to, to go on my mission, which then made my mission a different mission. Right. Did I have the, the full 10,000 that I needed? No. And so family pitched in, Bishop Schneider pitched in, others pitched in. So I, I, I had that kind of need 
uh, and others were, were happy to help. How did that feel at such a young age to be able to see that happen? I was impressed with how people were willing to, to, uh, to, to consecrate, we would say today, their, their money to help someone else preach the gospel. I love. Thank you for sharing that. I know I, I kind of put you on the spot, no. and but I, I really appreciate that. And just to make things fair, we're we're going to put Patrick on the spot, <laughs> and we're going to we're going to ask him the same question. Whenever yeah. you felt that you needed something, well, um, five years ago when my wife gave birth to our youngest daughter, it was a very traumatic birth. Uh, the fact that my wife is alive is literally a miracle. Um, but she was out of commission for a while, and we had a very premature baby in NICU, and it was, um, we were a family in crisis. And we absolutely relied on our ward, on our friends who are not members of the church for months. Uh, you know, the standard providing food and, and things like that, taking my wife, because um, she couldn't drive, taking her to the NICU so she could be with, with our daughter. Um, you know, spelling me uh, when I needed to rest. We couldn't take care of ourselves uh, at that moment. And it was, it was all those people who, who got us through several months of real hardship. Uh, thank you. Now, what has changed about you or your wife from, from that experience? We saw what Christianity is supposed to look like right? And we didn't have anything to offer in return, right? That the, there was no reciprocity. It was just pure charity. It was pure love. And so it, it taught us a lot about what, what Zion could look like. Yeah. You know, I've had moments like that in my life where I, where I have just glimpses of Zion, mm -hmm. enough to know that it's real, it's attainable. It's not just some otherworldly thing. It's not just when Jesus comes back, but that's what we're called to do today tomorrow and the next day as followers of Jesus. It's a powerful opportunity that we have access to as followers of Jesus. The parent of the universe looks upon the whole of his family, not with any of those contracted or constricted views that man has, that humans have, but with a wide expanse. That's beautiful. Blake Corbett, thank you so much for being with us. My it's pleasure. been a pleasure. Patrick, it's so good to meet with you and talk with you and hear from your insights. Yeah, my privilege. I want to invite those that are watching that if you felt something today uh, from the Holy Ghost, a prompting, that you will take the courage and act on it so that we can all together try to build this Zion community. Thanks again for watching. Please join in next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.